Hi, I'm Doug. And I'm David. And we are Beyond Hungry. David, what are we going to talk about today? So we had the opportunity to talk with Hannah Howard, a good friend that works at Living History Farms in Des Moines, Iowa. Doug, have you been to Living History Farms? You know, it's actually been a really long time, but I have a very... I want to say a clear memory, but I have a memory of, I think, in elementary school, we were all packed onto a bus uh, to go on a field trip. And that field trip was to Living History Farms. And I remember coming out there and I I can't say I remember a whole lot. I remember it being, you know, as the, the name suggests, a, a kind of a historic town. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a blacksmith. Uh, I remember, I think the blacksmith made S hooks and things like that. And would just like do little tricks like that, which was kind of fun. Um, And I I probably learned something there, but it's been so long. And honestly, I feel bad that I haven't really been back because, you know, in in talking with our guests, uh, it it sounds it it sounds like I'm really missing out and having Mm -hmm. having not been there in a while. And I feel like there's a lot I could learn. And there's a lot more that, you know, as an adult that I think I would appreciate more. So uh, what about you? Have you ever been? Um, I've always driven by, I've always wanted to go. And every time I had the opportunity to go, I don't know if it was timing or I don't know what happened, but every time we were like going to pull up the parking lot, there'll be a row of cars just oh. <laughs> waiting to enter. And I was like, yeah. I wasn't prepared for this. So yeah. I haven't gone. Unfortunately, I do want to go, even though now I live further away. But as a kid, um, like in elementary school and, and middle school, we did take trips like Springfield, Illinois and, and go to like a, you know, historical, I'll say village, but um, replication of like seeing like the the blacksmiths and the food and seeing how they made everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to experience that as an adult. And I feel like I have a more strong appreciation for it yeah. now than, than I did before. Yeah. Field trips are wasted on kids. What can I say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we dive in, I just want to put a note in here that uh, we had some slight audio recording and connectivity issues uh, going into this episode. We have tried to clean it up as best as we can. But, you know, to be fair, we're still learning and we're tweaking our process as we go along. So uh, please thank you for your patience and listening in on this. Well, let's get into it. Can you tell me what public historian means? This is the question that nobody in grad school could ever answer in like a quick sentence. So <laughs> I feel settle better in for about a second. that then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, public history to me is like the craft of translating historical data into language that people who don't have either experience or interest in like reading through tax documents recipe books, Mm. census data, whatever, into like a story we can all understand and connect with. And that's kind of like a really lofty answer, right? But like um, public historians often end up finding work in places like museums, um, archives, libraries. The way I kind of think about it, because then people are like, oh, so museum studies. And I'm like, no, it's different. And I think the difference is public history puts history in the spotlight in the way that like it is important to fully understand whatever past you're dealing with before you put it out into the world in the form of an exhibit, a tour, a lecture, whatever it might be. Mm. Whereas museum studies, I think focuses a lot on like the practical elements of like, here's how text looks on a wall. And it looks really nice if you have this font and this color, like that kind of thing. Okay. 
All right. That's that. That's a good. Yeah, because like the closest thing I could think of was museum studies. So thank you for making that clarification. I also didn't fully yeah. understand what that was, <laughs> sure. but now it's good that we have both. So I. So you work for what would you call Living History Farms? Then is that is that a museum? Is that a farm? <laughs> <laughs> uh, museum, historic site, farm. All of the above. We mm. are technically classified as a museum. Okay. Um, because we have a mixture of like exhibit space, recreated historical buildings, and actual historic sites. Um, and we are also a living history site, which is kind of exactly what it says on the can. But that basically means my colleagues and I are dressed in period clothing or period appropriate clothing and kind of demonstrating what life would be like, although importantly in the third person. So when I go to work, I'm not like, I'm Mrs. So-and-so on so-and-so uh -huh. farm or whatever. Um, and I don't know, what the, what are you holding? What is that strange device in your hand? It's like, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to get first person interpretation right. And nine times out of town, it makes everybody uncomfortable. Oh, okay. um, but it's actually really useful. It's really useful, though, in third person because you can mm -hmm. make comparisons between like, oh, the site you were at five minutes ago was set in 1850, but now we're in 1900. So let's talk about some changes and like why, you know, we have a stove in this house, but you had an open hearth in that house, even though there's only 50. So, so Hannah, we share some friends and I think, you know, why this came up is because some of your recent projects like intersect with kind of our space of just talking about food and culture a lot. What have you been working on over there recently? During the winter, when the museum is not open for touring, we kind of zero in on what we call our historic foodways programs, which consist of offering a slate of dinners that guests can book and the dishes are all drawn from historic recipes and they are prepared in the way by and large with a couple of exceptions, the way they would have been in the time period. And so we have a couple different choices from like late 1800s to early 1900s and guests come and kind of have this like very immersive experience of, you know, dining the way folks would have in 1900, say. The other thing we've been doing this winter is what we call our historic skills classes, which falls under, again, kind of historic foodways. Um, so if you've ever really wanted to learn how to like bake bread in a wood stove, that's something you could come learn how oh, to wow. do. And that is something that I teach people how to do, which if you told me that a year and a half ago, I would have been like, no, <laughs> never. <laughs> so is there like a... Is there like a, a century that you focus on, like as far as like, like you're like the go-to person for like, hey, we're gonna do this like these meals or this period of time? Is there something that you like mainly focus on? I tend to live in the late 1800s as opposed to the early 1900s at work. Um, in 1876, that's kind of like the year we interpret two of our houses where you can book a meal at. Hmm. Um, it's like the tail end of the Victorian period. Um, the houses I work at are upper to upper middle class, I would mm -hmm. say. And, but they're so rural. So it's kind of interesting to see how like some kind of like high end dining makes its way even to places you wouldn't expect to find it. But also some things get like forgotten or just sort of like 
we don't really know what the rule is. So we're just kind of going to go buck wild. Right. Can you give us some like uh, sort of temporal milestones of, of where we are in history? Because I know I'm I was a pretty terrible history student, unfortunately. Like what is happening in Iowa in that, you know, in 1876, what is happening in America that will help people kind of zero in on on when this is? Mm-hmm. So 1876 marks the end period of Reconstruction. Okay. So that is oh, wow. kind of the era following. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, right. It's like you when you think about 1876 in the abstract, you're like, oh, you know, whatever. But it's a it's just yeah. four numbers to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But thank you. That that helps. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, for sure. So like the Civil War is still very fresh in people's memory. Oh wow. Um, like we talk about quite often that a town like the reconstructed town of Walnut Hill, where I work most of the time, like there would have been a veterans organization there. Hmm. Like, Hmm. and those people would have like, you know, fought and been there and remembering, uh, like remembering the experience of the civil war would have been a part of like town life. Temperance is a hot button political issue in Iowa. For those who do not know what temperance is, you might know her cousin prohibition. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, that's what I say to guests. Um, sometimes it goes well. Sometimes people are like, murr, murr, but that's okay. <laughs> what else? Um, suffrage is a part of the conversation in Iowa in 1876. Obviously, the removal of indigenous peoples is happening in real time in 1876. That is something people in rural Iowa would have been aware of through newspapers, um, through word of mouth. It's not like in Iowa, it has kind of already transpired. Right. But in places a little bit further west, it is ongoing. This has come up this year because of COVID and people's interest in medical history in particular. Um the first real like scientific studies about like the pros of washing your hands to decrease the spread of disease is happening in 1876. Oh, wow. Um, like Joseph Lister, who is the person who kind of spearheads this campaign in, I believe England actually travels to the United States in 1876 to give a talk about it at the centennial celebration in Philadelphia. So like, 1876 is this really interesting year because it's like we're so close <laughs> to knowing some really important stuff that's going to carry us into the 20th century. Right. But we're not there yet. So we're we're, so. we're just learning about washing hands or or, or specifically like yes. the benefits that come from that. Germ theory is kind of starting to, yes. to become a thing. I, I feel like growing up, washing your hands before you eat was such like a, a thing that they drilled into us. Was there no, no ritual or no, no pre like cleaning ritual before people sat down to eat or. I don't know specifically about washing your hands before eating and like the hand washing thing in the medical industry, particularly among surgeons was like hmm. this weird badge of honor thing to be like how gross you could get like while you were like the precision and like the not, bloodiness of surgery was something that came a lot later it's really gross and very strange but yeah but in terms of like personal cleanliness and hygiene Mm -hmm. um you know this is not like the expectation we've had where it's like they took like one bath a month and they all shared the same water and things like that like people are like bathing at least once a week at this point and like it is a it's like a production you know and i think like people have been around animals certainly enough to know that like animals share germs with humans and that's gross and so if i had to make an educated guess people were washing their hands before they ate more regularly than they were when they did surgery 
Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I mean, I think that's a good thing, but also, wow. <laughs> yeah. Also, a it's bad dark, thing? you know, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, there's no winning in that and there's no losing either. That's just it's just it's just what it is. <laughs> so then, like, if that was being introduced, what methods of cooking were in here yeah. in Iowa prominent to that period? The like invention, the cast iron stove is something that completely transforms the way people cook just because it offers like the bare minimum. If all you want to do is like heat a pot of coffee and heat your house at the same time, you can get one that, that that's that small. You can get one that's like six feet wide and five feet tall, like, mm. you know, um, and they are just really well-built machines because they often like, you know, you light a fire on one end and from one end to the other, obviously it gets hotter or colder. So you do have some degree of temperature control. And there are ovens, obviously, in these stoves, too, that can be pretty well um, by dampers inside the stove. So, like, most cast iron stoves that you use to cook on actually have preheat functions where, like, you push a lever in and it shifts the damper inside the stove to let heat out or let it in, depending on what you're trying to do. Oh, wow. Um, so, it's, yeah. So, it's not like people are, you know, still kind of, like, cooking over open fires. Some people are. And that's mm -hmm. great. Love that. But I think in terms of what people are capable or, or how people are capable of cooking, it's maybe more certainly than I would have expected. I had no idea sort of what I was going to walk into um, when I got the job. What kind of fuel are they using to, to heat their cast iron stoves? Is it, is it wood? Is it coal? Is it those are the only two I can think of? <laughs> dried poop? Um, you could use dried poop, I guess. Um, some people, it kind of depends on where you are in terms of your socioeconomic status. Oh, okay. Mm. Because most most cast iron stoves are designed to burn either. So you can do wood because wood is cheap. It's available if you live in a wooded area. Mm. Um, but it takes a lot of time, obviously, to cut your own wood for fire. But if you have a little bit more cash in hand, you can buy coal. And coal is, like, way easier. Coal is, like... Yeah, like you're flexing a little bit on your money to be like, okay, oh. all right. And there are some advantages, <laughs> I imagine. I can, a, I can burn coal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what what got you into yeah. this? Like, how do you end up in this era and this type of work? Is it like something that you always wanted to do, or like how'd you how'd you get here in 1876? Funnily enough, in 1876, I just live now um <laughs> and i so i grew up going <laughs> i grew up going to living history farm on school field trips i was a day camp kid like i loved it as a kid and then after i got to i majored in history in college i have my master's degree in public history but once i got to grad school i was like i'm never ever, ever, ever going to work in living history. <laughs> it's just like, it's not what I want to do. It's not my scene. Like for whatever reasons, I think people, people often like mistake living history for like reenacting and like, mm. oh, you know, like, well, you're like really into it. You're like too into it. And so I was like, that's not going to be me. Um, <laughs> but I got my first job out of grad school at a traditional museum that I didn't like necessarily dislike. Um, 
but it was really expensive to live in Park City um, on a nonprofit and barista shared salary. Right. So I happened to find a job opening for my title was program manager at Living History Farms um, on this town side of things. So like I have no agricultural background at all. I think somewhere however many generations back my Pete, my dad's family farmed, but like not in my lifetime, certainly. So I was much more comfortable on the town side of things. And I like originally thought I was going to be like in period clothing, maybe two days a week. That was on March 13th, 2020 when I got hired (laughs) (laughs) and and, like five days later, they were like, so we'll let you know what the plan is. (laughs) (laughs) That was wild. But then yeah. on in May, I got to go back. To, I got to go to work for the first time. Mm-hmm. And my boss was pretty much like, yeah, so everything I had planned is kind of out the window. You're going to be on site in period clothing doing the thing. Probably, you know, four days out of five. So they just sort of like threw me into it. And I had really amazing teachers who basically showed me the ropes to be like, you're going to start the stove and you're going to start the stove again. And you're going to do it again. <laughs> and maybe you can do it in your sleep <laughs> and That's I can't awesome. so yeah I, I was kind of wondering about that aspect because you know you had mentioned that like you know you you kind of had to learn a lot and I was curious how much of that was like there are experts there who are walking you through and teaching you and 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 really passing on a lot of, of knowledge and how much of it is like you're pouring over doing primary research on artifacts and then pulling that out and turning that into an experience for for guests or what do you what do you call visitors People time travelers future? visitors guests okay the, <laughs> the public um, <laughs> um i would say for probably my first six months at work a lot of it was like here are manuals other people have researched and put together for you and you know Early on, it was like, you know, at least once a week, I was in a new building and it was like, here we are at Tangent House and you're going to learn how to start the stove. And then here you are at the broom shop and you're going to learn how to make a broom. And then here you are at the blacksmith and you're going to learn how to make an S hook. Yeah. Um, But as I was able to kind of demonstrate that I had enough, not like mastery, because I would not say I'm a master of wood stove cooking at all. But certainly enough to know that I was confident in it and I could probably mm-hmm. teach other people. We want to do this class about sourdough bread in the wintertime, but we haven't done it in a couple of years. And so there's not a lot like of content to go on. Do it. So I was like, okay. Um, I also got to do that with 19th century chocolate, like baking and cooking class, mm. which was really fun. And I learned a lot of really interesting stuff. Um So I'm kind of at the point in my journey in this position now that I'm kind of, I kind of have the reins where I get to like decide what we're doing and how programming is going to work, which is really exciting. So when you do these cooking classes or when you guys cook for, for um, these dinners, where do you get the recipes? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you research? Like, how do you find that these recipes even existed? Like, where do you, where do you even start? And then how do you create that, that recipe to now? Like, I'm guessing still the traditional way of like using the wooden stove, but do you modify them at all? How do you, do you guys grow the same crops? 
This is a fun question because I actually posed the same question to a group of fifth graders today who came on a field trip to talk about the three P's of food in 1900, which are preservation, production, and planning. Mm. Um, (laughs) And so we talked a lot about recipes and where they come from today. But recipes in the late 19th and early 20th centuries are in cookbooks just like they are today. Um, one of the most popular cookbooks of kind of that late 1800, early 1900s is called the White House Cookbook. And it, you know, allegedly is this compilation of cookbooks from like the presidents and their staffs and their families and things like mm. that. You know, it's like the Better Homes and Gardens Cookbook or like, mm. you know, how to cook everything, like things like that. Magazines are great sources for recipes because they are kind of telling women for the most part how to like run their houses mm. so you know, you know blue wallpapers out green wallpaper in like get your life right and then also mm. at your next dinner party here's something you could try serving I see. and you know mm. the avid reader Godie's lady book is gonna be like oh yeah i'm gonna tuck that away for next time <laughs> i don't know anything about the history of magazines but for some reason i i, I didn't expect the ma- magazines to pop up <laughs> in that time period so things you learn they're like kind of wild they don't look like magazines today it's like if you've ever seen a newspaper from that time period how they're Mm -hmm. like giant and with like teeny tiny writing and like no pictures and everything like that Mm -hmm. magazines are like really small oh they're like pocket versions of that they're like really then like and they have many more engravings and pictures i don't know if they're like women can't handle too many words or whatever (laughs) but like (laughs) You know, um, there's also, yeah, the magazines are fun. Um, it's also very common to have, and these are like very rare finds. And if you have one in your house, I'm very envious, but like the, the original, like old school, this is my grandma's recipe book where like she wrote her stuff down, but also like Mrs. Smith's down the roads, like pork chop recipe that (laughs) won the town potluck. And she's like, but it's a secret, but I'm going to let you have it. And like, (laughs) um, that happened all the time. It's like, not a lot of those survive just because like the ones we use at work that we have made for ourselves from recipes people have found are like falling apart and they're probably like only 20 years old. Mm. So, um, those ones are really special if you can get a hold of those. What what about measurements? I feel like, you know, I have occasionally dug like a a historic family, not my family, but like other people's like families of recipes where someone has trotted something out and it is um, arcane sometimes. (laughs) I don't know. It's just it's just like you see the measurements or it'll be you'll have like half scribbled notes that you you really have to like struggle to interpret uh, n- not even that they're like illegible, but like you just don't know what any of that means. Like, what is that process like trying to you know, take something from another era and, and have to translate that out? It's a lot of trial and error. <laughs> um, <laughs> and a lot of patience, particularly in being like, does this mean what I think they meant? I guess we'll find out. Um, I think. I have a good example of this because again, I was asked to do this kind of sourdough bread baking class Mm -hmm. a year too late after like the trend, my boss in like February of this year was like, we should do that. And I'm like, 
I don't know that you've ever made sourdough because it takes like days, but okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, but, um, but it's never called sourdough in recipe books from that time because that's just not like what they would have called it. And they're like, it's homemade yeast. It's like, it's bread that's made with homemade yeast. Right. And so when I first came across that, cause I spent like forever, like, you know, digging like sourdough, sourdough and it never comes up. So I was like, well, and so, you know, you go to like, you know, the, there are these specialty cookbooks that are like home maintenance manuals too. And so it's like how to set a table, how to make, toothache powder if your kid you know has a cavity and you can't go to a dentist because you could maybe also die if you go to the dentist those books are really good because they're like i'm assuming you are an 18 year old housewife who doesn't know anything and here's how you make your own yeast (laughs) um (laughs) wow love it um because it's just not available commercially Mm -hmm, um in the way that it is today and especially not like the instant kind that I love, but, um, that was not what you asked originally, but in terms of like, but kind of, because it's, you know, no, no, like, yeah. what are they talking about? Mm-hmm. Right. And like, what is the equivalent that I can come up with? Um, measurements are kind of like a total crapshoot. And I would say if you were ever working from a recipe that is historic, that is not adapted mm-hmm. and most of the recipes we use at work have been adapted. Um, you are going to want to take a long, hard look at your sugar and salt measurements because sugar and salt are preservatives right and so part of the reason behind like loading up on those ingredients is that like i need this pumpkin butter to last me all winter in my root cellar and so it might come out like really 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 sweet um if you were to do that and like serve it today um yeah i did make just a truly terrible batch of biscuits once trying to use homemade yeast. Uh-huh. Like I made them here at my house, not at work. And I was just like, I took a bite and I was like, Oh no. It's like when you put too much baking soda or baking powder in oh. something mm. and you're just like, it just t- tastes like metal. That's like what it was like. <laughs> trying to translate that, like the measurements I was always kind of curious about because like, especially when, you know, when you're talking about baking, you know, like sourdough, first of all, yeah, you're, you're trying to create your own, a source of yeast um but then like baking measurements like what i've been taught to like nail baking is like you kind of have to do things by weight which i don't know i'm were scales a thing like in your your common kitchen like household was that a thing or or was everyone doing everything by volume and feel i would say feel above all else okay like okay. over and over you again know. you if screw you up read, enough if like <laughs> Like, and if you, if you read like cookbooks and like any recipe, it could be for whatever they, there's going to be some sentence in there where it's going to be like, add enough water until it feels like this or until mm-hmm. thick, until thin, until mm-hmm. close to the back of a spoon, you know? And you're just like, well, okay. Like on what, you know, based on what kind of water you have, how old is your flour? Like, right. i also think about it. And I'm just like, these people you know, as much as I know that there were people who took like a lot of pride in their cooking mm-hmm. and in making others feel safe and like welcome at their table. Sometimes these people were also just like, my kid is sick. My horse is lame. I just need to put gravy on this chicken and call it a day. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> so 
do you think that you you like saltier things now more because of the food that you're making from that time? Not necessarily. I have always been like a salt kid. Like I can't, I always have a bag of pretzels in my car, like just for snack sustenance sake. Like that is such an interesting question. You know, learning all this and, and, and recreating and translating, you know, recipes or cooking or what you cook, what you said, food ways from 1876 or around that era. Do you feel like that's influenced your tastes in any way? Like what, what, what do you feel like you are into now as a benefit of, of, of knowing so much about this period? I think first and foremost, it has made me a much more confident cook and like kind of given me like a sense of fearlessness I didn't have. Like the example that my partner loves to make fun of me for is that like in March of last year, I made like pecan sticky buns for the first time ever with like a yeasted dough. Mm -hmm. And I was like on the edge of my seat. I was just like, it's I'm going to overeat it. It's going to be terrible. (laughs) I was like on the edge of like a breakdown for sure. Um, And now I'm like, I've made, I don't even know how many batches of rolls of cinnamon rolls of at work in the past year that I'm just like, meh, Nine times out of 10, it'll be fine. You know, it's just like (laughs) having, having like familiar elements of control taken away from me. Like I can't measure as precisely. I certainly can't weigh things in the way that I Mm -hmm. do here at my house. Um, I can't set an oven to 350 degrees. I just kind of have to like watch the fire and be like, yeah, that seems right. Like, you know, (laughs) and then watch the food too, because if it's not right, it will also let you know. Right. Right. (laughs) Like, um, But so when I'm home, I'm like, this is still, it's going to be okay. You know, Mm -hmm. like, and it's, I feel like I can try new things in a way that I didn't used to. I used to be such a like, God, follow the recipe to the T, no Mm -hmm. wiggle room, no no (laughs) substitutions, bad. But now I'm just like, whatever. (laughs) It's not good. So do do you think you prefer yeah, that um, method of cooking rather like the new technological, like new technology based that we have? I don't know that I prefer it, but I do. I will say that I don't think bread tastes as good in a modern oven. There's just something about the way like the heat of like a cast iron stove just like so evenly like browns everything Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the crust to crumb like ratio is just like untouched unparalleled um it's also i think just given me an interesting kind of appreciation for like using what you have because at like a historic site we don't always have the money or the time to go out and like get everything you need to make you know a meal or whatever mm-hmm. for dinners we do for our like historic dinners programs. You know, if you're like out of eggs, somebody's got to go to, go get eggs, but we do cook on site, like during the summer, during the touring season. Um, and so you're like, well, I have an onion and I have a little bit of like chives and I have some frozen chicken. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> and so like at my house, Again, I used I used to be such like a like a menu planner too. I'm like I gotta know what I have and I can't do anything without it. But now I'm just like cool, throw it all together. It's great. 
I, I want to dive into the sort of, you know, what was on the dinner table or what was at breakfast or lunch, you know, during that time period, you kind of mentioned, you know, you, you, you plan some nicer dinners uh, and I'd love to hear what's on there, but also like, I'm, I'm also curious about like the kind of everyday like fare that people were consuming and it, and I have like, I don't have any reference point for what people ate historically other than like, I'm sure bread was involved <laughs> and I'm sure there was some protein, but like beyond that, I don't know. Like we typically, I should have stopped saying we like, it's like, you know, the Royal we of living history farms. Um, I typically tell people at my job that for like a working class farm class, even like middle-class family, you're going to pretty much guarantee that there is going to be some kind of protein, a vegetable and like a bread. Okay. And that's like your daily meal. Um, but protein might take interesting forms that we don't always anticipate. Hmm. Like what really surprised me to know is that people in 1876 really loved seafood. People in Iowa loved seafood. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> oh, man. Because Yeah, isn't that wild? <laughs> um, and like, like I'm not just talking like catfish and like river fish, like – they loved oysters. They loved clams oh, um, be because you could can them. And oh. they would be, you, they were really easy to pack in oil and right. ship. That was like a favorite picnic snack was to like make toast points and then bring smoked oysters, and eat those. But you could get like raw oysters delivered by train in like a safe enough window that you could eat them and keep them on ice in Iowa oh, to God. the point that there were, oh, my number fails me, six or seven licensed oyster and ice cream parlors in Des Moines in 1876 um, where you could go get both, which is my dream. I love oysters <laughs> on the half shell. I love ice cream. Um, but because ice was not like widely available, you kind of mm. had to have an establishment where you could like do both. Mm. Wait, so are you saying that you would have – okay, so you're saying it, it, it's like a – it's a combination because they, they are – they have the facilities to, to have ice there and store it. They would just be like, well, what are we going to do with this ice? Yes. Well, oysters and ice cream together. Like, we're just going to serve that. I don't see why we can't bring that. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, like, I, I, I don't I, see. I, I love both yeah. of those. So, like, that sounds amazing. It, I don't know why we're not doing that right now. Like, can, can you imagine ice cream and oyster pop up? It's like a dream come true, be, for I sure. I would love that. In Mexico, there's yeah. this, uh, this is city... It's known as an ice cream city. And they actually have ice cream of all flavor. They have a, a fish ice cream, like ceviche. And they have one with shrimp and, no and octopus Ooh. in it. It's kind of like a sorbet. So, like, you have it like chunks in there and there's, like, lime and citrus. So, I was like, I wonder if, like, an oyster ice cream. That's just me thinking. Our, our listeners I, I, are I like, stop good. talking. <laughs> I'd be into that. No. I, I, yeah. I could do oyster. Could you imagine if, I would definitely if, try like, it. If like the oyster is served like not on the shell, but on like some like sorbet with some of like that like you know sauce and then some lemon juice or like a little like scoop of like a lemon sorbet on top, and then eat it that way. We have an idea, guys. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and I suppose <laughs> yes. to be fair, absolutely. I do know like a little bit historically about oysters, and they were not necessarily like. I don't know exactly when, but I know there was a period of time when they weren't necessarily regarded as a luxury food in the same way that it is today. That like 
oysters were much more plentiful. Yes. And so like, this was the thing that lots of people enjoyed. Um, and so like, it, that's, yes. it doesn't have the status. It, it's just not the status symbol necessarily that it is today. Mm-hmm. So that would be, that, that would probably no. make sense. Okay. All right. Well, uh, what else? Uh, what else? So, this, so they were getting seafood by train. Uh, I'm sure there were some local sources, rivers, and things like that. But they, mm-hmm. I, I, it's it's sort of weird to to, to think about. But um, but yeah. What what else were people eating? Were what else did you find sort of surprising about the the diet of a 1876, you know, Iowan? I recently learned that like. I'm like trying to remember all the details of it, but (laughs) the shift from like how we consumed meat, we, I shouldn't, bad, (laughs) not me. I live in 2021. (laughs) I know that. Um, So I guess backpedaling, meat is a part of people's diets, but it's very rare that it's like a fresh, like, you know, cut of meat, Mm -hmm, especially in rural places because farmers are butchering in the fall and winter. And so it's pretty, it's rare. Like you're not going to have like a kind of like steak on the 4th of July or whatever. Um, But when people were buying meat, like they really liked that it was local. They liked that they knew the person who like, you know, produced the animal or Mm -hmm. whatever to the point that when Chicago started becoming, you know, this big center of like meat processing and like the, like really letting the professionals handle it Mm -hmm. um, and like, dressing meat to be packaged and preserved for longer periods of time. People didn't like that. They did not trust that. They were like, not, not about it. Um, Which I found really interesting because they were, they were told over and over again, like it's safer. Like, you know, this has been kind of, you know, signed and sealed and approved by like, not the FDA because it wasn't around yet, but you know, (laughs) by people who knew what, who knew what they were doing. Right. But folks in the rural Midwest were still kind of like, but like, I know my neighbor and like his dad baptized my kid, you know, like I, I know him. So like, it was a very, uh, just an interesting like cultural shift to be like, where does your food come from? People were not comforted by like mass production in that way, even Mm -hmm. though they were in other senses, because like you can't get, can't get your oysters without that. The kind of flip side to that is chicken because chickens are small and you can butcher a chicken whenever and they reproduce like crazy. So it's like if you wanted meat on your table and you had chickens, it was pretty easy to get mm-hmm. it there. And chicken is my favorite example too to talk about leftovers because leftovers were could get kind of dicey if you don't have a good place to kind of keep them or store them. Um, so if you're going to sit down at your biggest meal of the day, which is lunch, it's not dinner or supper mm. or like, you know, because we're hashtag in Iowa, uh, lunch is dinner, dinner is supper. <laughs> so <laughs> at dinner, you sit down and you eat all your carbs and all your protein to keep you going through the day. And so maybe they butchered a chicken in the morning to make, you know, like a roast chicken for dinner. Uh, you would save whatever cuts of chicken people didn't eat and you might make it into a pot pie at night oh, okay. um, and kind of use what you had again mm-hmm. just to get like maximum benefit from whatever you were working with you could push it in the colder months and you know you could eat that for like breakfast too right that's wild to me to think about leftovers as being 
it's because my conception of leftovers is like I made something for dinner and then I might eat it for lunch the next day. But here it's like I did something this morning or maybe for lunch and then I'm reformatting it for on the same day in just a different form, uh, which I don't think I do that that much. Um, but that that feels like something interesting to try. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I make no. something for dinner and yeah. that's going to be leftovers in two days. Cause I don't like, I'm like, right. I need, yeah. I need, a, I need a buffer. I, I need a like, buffer. Yeah, it's usually like a day. I like wait a day and then I'll revisit it. And then sometimes I have too many leftovers and I'm like, Oh no. But, um, well, 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 oh, yeah. God, that, that, that's sort of fascinating to think about. Cause yeah, cause the, there's, they have ice, but there's no like refrigeration in a, in a sort of like regular home. You might, do they have like a, I don't know, like a, a chest or a cellar or like, how are people, keeping food is it just a box in the corner yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we put all the food that we yeah. <laughs> like only eat that if you're really desperate over there right. in the corner don't look at it too closely in like farmhouses that are typical in the midwest of this time most have mm-hmm. root cellars that was also something you know as soon as like you kind of establish the foundation for your house you're going to dig a root cellar because you can keep things like potatoes and carrots and all that good stuff down there because the ground temperature is going to hover right between like the 40 and 50 degrees zone Mm -hmm. which was good enough for them um i am serve safe certified now because of this job and i'm just (laughs) like temperature danger zone no (laughs) right yeah i I don't know if that quite (laughs) but yeah (laughs) not it um but that's also you know kind of conveniently in the winter months you're going to be eating a lot more fresh cuts of meat that you can keep cold due to the climate outside Mm -hmm. and so you're eating like on your sort of fresh cuts of meat while you're preparing things like sausage and bacon and hams that are going to get you through um the summertime so you can still have protein on your table even though you know you're probably not going to go out and like butcher a hog that day if you live near a water source that freezes easily um, you certainly could have cut your own ice. That was very common in places like surprise Minnesota, um, <laughs> yeah. where ice was just kind of naturally plentiful. And oh, I was looking at a price list today with my fifth graders. Ice was like sold by the bucket and it cost like three cents, which for a bucket of ice. So if you were going to make like ice cream for like a special occasion, maybe worth it but probably not worth it just to like keep something cold like right so three cents so three cents would be equivalent to how much in today's money what a good question (laughs) um let's let me i can kind of perspectivize it too so like three cents for a bucket of ice versus a cent for like 16 ounces of pepper versus 10 cents for one square of like baker's chocolate oh but also but also some of these things are like you know hot ticket items in 1876 Mm -hmm. chocolate is like a really new product in the late 19th not like new of course that's like that was a really stupid thing to say but in terms of like the way we think about like baker's chocolate as like a bar you can buy did not taste very good in 1876 because like 
chocolatiers in Europe were like trying to figure out how to make it like smooth, which is just like not something chocolate wants to do super like on its own. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and like being able to sell it commercially was like a novelty for them when of course it's been used in cuisines throughout the world for like thousands of years. And it's just like white people being like, gotta make it can't do it. So <laughs> it's weird to think about people still thinking about like, chocolate, but yeah. yeah. Right. It's like, okay, but <laughs> so I looked, I looked it up. So it's uh it says a dollar in 1870 is worth $20 and 22 cents today. That crazy. sounds about right. Bucket of ice yeah. is expensive. I mean, I still I complain think, about buying a bag of ice. So Yeah, I, I think about like my yeah. reference point here is like Charlie Chaplin films and like watching him pay for like meals at like a, a, a fine dining establishment with like a nickel or like a dime or something like that. And it's that that's my only like potential reference point there. So every time I hear like pay with like coins, I think of like those movies where they just throw a bag be like oh this this weighs about this much here you go <laughs> <laughs> right, there you go and it's got like money signs on it yeah. next to the right. jugs with x's on them <laughs> w five cents and you yes. just flick a coin yeah that's enough what has been your favorite thing to cook or learn to cook like if you were to make a meal let's say we threw like a little gathering you're like you know what like i really enjoy this and i want everyone to try it Ooh. what would that be okay Okay. I really love just like chicken and dumplings, I think mm -hmm. is really easy. Um, tastes delicious. You can use whatever you have on hand or you can buy whatever really nice vegetables you want if you've got access to them. Um, I also really love, and this was something I grew up eating at my grandmother's house, but is very appropriate for the work I do now. I love biscuits and gravy, like just <laughs> the best, best, most comforting food in the whole world. And like, I really love, cause my beef with like restaurant biscuits and gravy is that the sausage is just kind of like, okay. Mm -hmm. But my grandmother would always like really, really brown it and get it nice and crispy. And it's like mm. a good texture differential in the gravy itself. And like, I grew up eating biscuits that were like, definitely like in my house, we call them like depression biscuits because they are like the bare minimum of ingredients you can put together to make something that is, that aspires to be fluffy. I would say it's like not even there <laughs> um, because that's like, like, cause that's like how my grandma learned to make them when she was like a child probably. But I have since lived in North Carolina and I learned to appreciate the finer things like a really good biscuit made with white lily flour. Mm. So I would be like, we're gonna have biscuits and gravy. I'm probably going to make, this is like such a silly, stupid, easy side, but I really like it. And nobody else I works with does because they think if it, if green beans don't have bacon in them, they're not worth making. I disagree. Um, <laughs> I like green beans that are just like, simmered on the stove with a little bit of pepper, a little bit of lemon juice and just like water. And they taste just like, it just gives like a little bit of like, zing. what else are we going to make? Um, I am so pro making your own butter. You can do it in your house with a KitchenAid and it's stupid easy and it tastes delicious. How, how do you um, make it for our listeners? I saw, our, I've seen a video okay. like on social yep. media. So I'm, I'm going to explain it. See, let me know if it's, 
That's correct. So essentially you get, yeah. um, I would say, would you get milk, right? Or heavy cream? Heavy cream. Okay. Heavy cream. And you put it in your KitchenAid and you just let it keep going. And then it was such like gets like pretty whipped. Mm -hmm. And then Which you just let what it attachment, by the way, you use the dough one, the dough attachment, the, the dough hook or the, or the whisk, the, the whisk. whisk. What would you recommend? Oh, the whisk, the whisk. The whisk. Okay. So the whisk. And then you, you, then you like, if you longer, let it, let it keep going. It essentially starts seeing it separate. Like you start seeing like parts of the milk, like, like water separation. Right. And then eventually it becomes yeah. butter and then you're supposed to like squeeze it and rinse it. And then you have your, what is it? That, uh, what's it called? What's it called? Buttermilk. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. I think buttermilk is a yeah. byproduct of washing butter. Right. Yeah. 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 Is it really that easy? Yes. Do you do it yeah. often? It's that easy. I will do it for special occasions at my house, but at work, that is one of like the weekly prep things we do for like a dinner is somebody's got to go make butter. And so <laughs> I think you do butter and you make breadcrumbs from like old rolls. That's like your, that's like your duty for the week. Um, but I have learned that like, I know it's butter by the way it sounds because I, again, like I said, I used to be so like, okay, but I got to check. I got to know, I got to see what's going on. But now I will like pour my heavy cream in there, set it up. Um, I also have like a very, I do have strong opinions on how to wrap your KitchenAid for like minimum butter mess because it is <laughs> so gross to clean up um, if you make like a giant mess out of your buttermilk. But when the butter starts to like kathunk, 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 kathunk in the bowl, that's how you know it's done. It's been whipped enough. And when you hear it start to kathunk, 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 you got to go and you got to turn it off because if right. you keep, if you let it keep going, it will whip itself back into like a, a form that you can't mold anymore. Right. So mm. that's interesting. Have you made a video of this? This, this should go, be like on a TikTok thing or something. I feel like making <laughs> make the new sourdough. It's the new sourdough trend. Yes. Make your butter at home. Um, I had never have, but maybe I will now. I love to make butter. I think it's really fun. <laughs> adding things to your butter too can't recommend it enough i love obviously i love salt in my butter surprise um but i will sometimes again kind of at my house i'll let i will let it get whipped back up so like it has been whipped cream and it's been solid butter and now it's whipped butter mix a little bit of honey in there and like on whatever sounds good it's just like the dream like blueberry bagel cornbread <laughs> english muffin whatever <laughs> I think uh, I'll definitely have to try and make butter this weekend now. Yeah, I love butter. I use it in everything. It's so good. What is your favorite food memory? Whether like is it like making biscuits and gravy with your grandma or something like that you know that like I eat this dish because it brings good memories. Mm -hmm. Biscuits and gravy definitely occupies that space for me. Um the other thing I will say that does the same thing, like my, so again, my grandmother, the same grandmother of biscuits and gravy, um, <laughs> was a cake decorator at oh. Dolls grocery store for a really long wow. time. Um, and so she's a very talented, like confection maker. 
and she makes these Christmas cookies that I think like, I don't even know, you know, I've seen the recipe like at her house, but I don't know that like I could do it from memory. And I don't really know if anything makes them special sugar cookies, except for the icing, which is like a dolls now defunct rip dolls, like recipe for the icing. Uh, and the icing is just like different. It tastes so good. And we like make these cookies at Christmas every year and they're always shaped like, you know, bells and stars and Christmas trees. And the icing is dyed like two bright colors to be like, I don't feel good about eating this much red dye, but whatever. <laughs> like, but they just, it makes me think of her. It makes me think of my siblings. I'm the oldest of four siblings. Um, and up until I moved away and I'm obviously back, but my brother lives in Austria now. And like my other two siblings are kind of in and out. Like we would go as adults to her house and like make them with her every year. We did it over zoom this year. Um, and it's just like such a simple thing, but I think it speaks to like what she thought was important. Um, for us to have like with her. And I think it's really cool that, that that was like her job. She was just like, she came from like farming people, but I think like a couple generations back, even like, I don't think her dad farmed even, but that like food and like making it for other people to consume and enjoy was like a part of her career life even though she like didn't go to college or like anything like that she just like left her like tiny town and was like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna move to des moines <laughs> to create cakes and and that's what she did so i don't know i like both of my grandmas are like into food but in really different ways like my mom's mom is very like she's like a dinner party person, you know, she's going to like plan her menu weeks in advance and like mm. go to the butcher, go to the fish mm -hmm. counter, get it all taken care of. But like <laughs> my grandma will call my dad and be like, I think I'm going to fry up some chicken. Do you want to come over? Mm. And you know, very different, but like valuable obviously in different ways, but they're both really cool ladies. They're different, but they're cool. Love that. So do you, do you think that you see yourself in the career that you're doing at living history and farm kind of tied to like your grandmother, like, her cooking, you know, decorating cakes and that being her career and you doing your career in food and kind of like having that bond. Yeah. I think about it all the time, especially, um, I don't get to decorate like a lot of cakes at my job every once in a while, but I think about, you know, the way her mother must have cooked and like, it can't be mm -hmm. far from what I do at work all the time. And we did just finish up a special kind of slate of dinners in the month of March that were fried chicken in like just the way that she does. And I was just <laughs> like, this is very like a weird full circle moment. And she loves, like, you know, she loves to know what's going on at the farms. Like, obviously it hasn't been a great year for like older people to get out and be around. <laughs> um, right. I would, and she's not like, super duper mobile anymore but like i would love to like have her come and like let me cook her oh i'm gonna get emotional about it i would love to have her like come eat a meal that like i made that would be like like beyond 
learn more about Living History Farms, visit lhf.org for those dinner events and more. Also, if you'd like to follow Hannah on her awesome food and life adventures on Instagram, it's at H-A-N-N-A underscore M underscore H-O-W-A-R-D. Please reach out and let us know what you've liked, what you haven't, and what you'd like for us to talk about. You can find us and DM us questions and comments at We Are Beyond Hungry on Instagram and Facebook. You can also reach us at We Are Beyond Hungry at gmail.com. And a special thank you to Bo Brenton for our music. You can find him on social at B E A U B R E N T O N. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or however you rate podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, please, please help us out. Write a sentence or two. And as always, thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>